I mean, spring bear is, is probably my favorite hunt overall. Like if I could do one thing forever, it would, it would be spring bear somewhere. Right. But in, in Montana, in that, uh, that Western border of Montana and, and Eastern border of, uh, Idaho there, it's, it's pretty rare to see a, a black bear. So like a black, black bear, most of the time you're seeing, you know, reds and orange, and cinnamons and you know just uh not not a lot of that that true jet black and so i get really excited when i see a, a true jet black black bear <laughs> and people think that's funny these are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands i'm james nash and this is the six ranch podcast A hot drink can become cool in two primary ways, through conduction and convection. Conduction occurs when two objects touch each other. Imagine holding a piece of ice. Before long, your fingers are cold and the ice begins to melt. That's conduction. Convection occurs when a gas or liquid moves from being different temperatures. When you heat water over a stove, the warm water moves up and the cool water moves down. That's what you're seeing when water boils, and that's convection. A stainless vacuum bottle prevents conduction from occurring by creating a void between the walls of the bottle, thermos, or cup, and the outside air. It prevents convection by keeping all the liquid inside at the same temperature. That's how a Stanley product keeps your cold drink cold and your hot drink hot. And they've been doing it for 110 years. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Stanley 1913, and you can check out their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com. Mr. Jared Brown from The Draw. How are your holidays, sir? Uh, Good, good. (laughs) That's a big sigh, like you're almost glad they're over. Yeah, no, just uh, I got to go home to, to Utah for... A week and spend some time with the family and yeah i think uh i think i'm ready to start start this new year and get into application season again so what's uh what's the first application that's due so right now we're looking at wyoming elk application so this isn't a point only application that happens later in the year but if you're wanting to apply for elk in the state of wyoming this year that deadline is going to be January 31st. January 31st. And then after that, it's probably Oregon Spring Bear, right? Uh, Arizona uh, elk and antelope will happen just before uh, Oregon Spring Bear. Okay. Uh, two days. So February 8th and then Spring Bear is uh, February 10th in, in Oregon. Okay. Gotcha. Cool. Um, anything new in Wyoming? Um, not really. I mean, there's a little bit happening in Wyoming. Um, they, they pushed for that 90, 10 split on your sheep, moose and goat, um, stuff there, uh, which did pass. So going into 2023, there will be a, uh, new tag allocation for the sheep and moose, um, which, you know, uh, will affect a few things there. And then 
they did push for the deer, uh, elk and antelope to do the same thing. Um, and that was denied. So we're not going to be looking at, a, an eight year wait for a general elk tag in, in Wyoming. So what, what is the 90, 10 split? What, what does that mean? So uh, the way that the tag allocation works is they're, they're saying 90% of the tags are going to go to residents and then 10% of those tags are going to go to, to, uh, to non-residents. Right. And what was it like before? So before it was an 80, 20 split. Okay. Um, so it's going to decrease our, our numbers of tags by half, right. Uh, as a non-resident, um, so where, where it's really important or where it makes uh, the biggest difference, especially for the sheep and moose, um, is going to be that in those draws, 75% of the total number of tags um, for non-residents would go to the max point holders. And then 25% of those are going to go into a random draw. Um, but now, because of that, um, there, there won't be any, in a lot of units, there's not going to be enough non-resident tags for there to be a random tag in Wyoming for sheep. Okay. So uh, there's going to be half as many opportunities for non-residents in Wyoming for elk as what there used to be. Not for elk, just for the sheep and moose. Just for sheep and moose. So elk remains the same and antelope? Remains the same. Deer remains the same. Okay. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. So the only thing, right, is, is your sheep and moose. So if you have guys that are starting to build points now uh, for sheep and moose, it's going to be really tough because there isn't going to be a random random tag available, right, um, in a lot of the units that where there used to be a random tag available. Gotcha. So I heard an interesting thing which was that Alaska now has a couple exceptions. Um, and I, I don't know if this is a hundred percent true. So um, maybe you can correct me or, or maybe you haven't heard, but it sounds like Alaska now has a sheep tag and a brown bear tag that do not require guides for non-residents. I have not heard anything about that yet. Okay. Um, I'm sure um, obviously I I typically will will focus on more of the traditional states, um, your Utah, New Mexico, Texas, Wyoming, Colorado, right? Um, I do try to stay on top of those things as those draws get closer. But I know Jordan, I lean on him pretty heavily on that. He focuses, he's, he's got the traditional states down really well. Um, but I, I do lean on him pretty heavily on that. And I'm, I'm guessing he probably has a good idea of, of what's going on there with that. Yeah. No, it's, it surprised me when I heard that. And, uh, and the, the buddy that told me, asked him to run that down a little bit more. He did say that there was really limited numbers on, on those, uh, those tags that were available, but um, yeah, it sounds, sounds interesting. I go back and forth on, on Alaska, whether it's a good thing to have, a requirement for guides for a lot of those species. It's uh, it, it it's it's interesting. So for black bear, for example, you don't have to have a black bear uh, guide to hunt in Alaska. But if you're hunting black bears in a lot of places in Alaska, there could be brown bears there, or grizzly bears there too. 
So you're, you're exposed to essentially the same, same threat levels and, and stuff like that, but you don't necessarily have to legally have a guide. So it's just, it's just interesting. It's interesting how that all breaks down. And of course you've got to draw a line somewhere and there's, especially with the requirements that Alaska has for their guides and outfitters, you're going to get a high quality individual who's, you know, got a, a minimum skill requirement that is honestly substantially higher than the minimum skill requirement that's required from, from guides anywhere in the lower 48. So yeah, good, good and bad. I can see with it, but if there are some opportunities for people to go and, and hunt brown bears without a guide, uh, that definitely decreases the the financial barrier somewhat because brown bear tags are crazy expensive. Oh, and then, I mean, obviously the tag's expensive, but then uh, the actual hunt itself. Sure. I guess that's that's what I meant. Like by the time you pay pay for the outfitter and the hunt and everything, it's, um, you know, you're going to be looking at a minimum of 20000 but probably $30,000 uh, yeah. to go brown bear hunting. Yeah. So... Yeah, no, that would be really cool. I think uh, it, it would benefit a lot of people. Um, obviously, I don't like to speculate, but it would be cool if there was something like that available. Okay, uh, you said Arizona's next. Anything new in uh, in the, the great and sunny state of Arizona? Um, nothing as of right now. Um, I'll touch on just quick. Uh, they did put a 10% cap on all over over the counter tags in Arizona. Um, doesn't really affect us all that much because we're kind of mainly focused on the draw stuff. Uh, but for guys that do want to go and hunt Arizona for any over the counter things, there now is a 10% cap on uh, the available tags for, for non-residents. And, you know, one of the things that, that we already mentioned is the the spring bear draw is is coming up quickly for Oregon in February 10th. There's some very drawable tags in Oregon for spring bear, especially in the Southwest. Uh, I don't think there are any spring bear tags that are a hundred percent chance for residents or non-residents, but resident and non-resident tags do have one thing in common for Oregon bear hunting. And that's that your tag is $16 and 50 cents. Pretty screaming deal, I think. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I think that's, uh, and you can get two, I believe, is that correct? So you can get two uh, fall bear tags over the counter. Fall bear tags. Um, I don't know of any places in Oregon where you can get two spring bear tags. Right, just just on the fall bear hunts. And the fall bear hunts are over the counter. Right, and that starts August 1st. So if you draw a spring tag and then you get two fall tags, you could if you get after it, you could harvest three bears a year in Oregon. Yeah. That's, that's pretty special. Yeah. And, you know, come in for like uh $48 and doing all that. Not too shabby. Yeah. Right. right. I think people in Kansas are paying more than that for a Turkey tag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, it's cool. It's cool. I think for the spring bear or just the bear hunting opportunities in Oregon. Um, and then, you know, you're, you're moving into Idaho where it's, a an over the counter tag, Montana over the counter, right. For your spring bear, um, and fall bear. And then you've got, you know, Utah next after that, which is, uh, 
a draw tag um, for both spring and fall. They do have some harvest objective over-the-counter tags in Utah, but for those, you know, better hunts where uh, they're not spot and stock, so any uh, hound or baited hunts you would see on those uh, on those draw tags. And that's one of the things that makes bear hunting so interesting is, you know, it, depending on the regulations in, in the state that you're in, but say it's a, a Utah or an Idaho, you can go out and you can have that really high adrenaline, fast action, high energy hunt with, uh, with hunting with hounds. You can have that that uh that bait hunt where you're going to get to observe bear behavior and uh and maybe be a lot more selective about which bear you end up squeezing the trigger on if if you get that opportunity and then if you want more of that high angle you know hike spot and stock glass for days um you know travel through some really crazy country you've got that for spring bear as well so it's it's really an incredible opportunity and and i liken it to any of these high dollar hunts like like sheep hunts or elk hunts or deer hunts you know you you get all of the value of that on a spring bear hunt as far as the hunting style and uh, and stuff like that plus you get to hunt a really interesting animal being the the black bear i i think it's a great opportunity so utah uh utah montana Idaho, Oregon, uh, Washington no longer has spring bear. Does California have a spring bear season? I believe they do. And then uh, I know they do have their fall season for sure. Right. Um, Wyoming has a spring bear season. Right. Has a spring bear season. Um, New Mexico, um, it's, uh, it's all based off of harvest objectives in new mexico though so uh, as soon as uh, one particular unit has harvested the certain number you know uh, within their objective then they'll close the the season but that's another state um with uh, a spring bear season and and while that's that's an arguable approach i really like that approach to wildlife management so it's the same way that fisheries are managed in a lot of places especially commercial fisheries it's like hey this is how many fish we think we have this is how many fish we can take from that population and still have enough that can go and spawn and and create all the new baby fish that we could ever possibly need for the next cycle when those fish mature so they just let people fish until they've reached that point and then shut it down i really really like that and it makes all the sense in the world to me from from a biological perspective it gets a little sticky in these remote areas where you know you may not have cell service while you're on your hunt and you're checking constantly by any means that you can to see whether the the uh the season is still open but since we have inreach and you know all these wonderful satellite communication possibilities today it it's a very doable thing and it it is by far the most the most precise way to manage these wildlife populations. So I, I say good on you, New Mexico. What it does require is you've got to know how many bears are out there and bears are, are a difficult population to ascertain, but that's a wildlife biologist's job. So uh, figure it out. Yeah. Yep. 
no, I'm I'm with you on there. So, any of the back east states have any spring seasons? I know a lot of them have fall seasons. Not that I am aware of. Yeah, um, I'm sure. Definitely focus more on on the the Midwest and and Western states, but I think uh, that's definitely something that I I should be looking at too. But you'll see, you know, Maine and Pennsylvania will have uh, fall seasons and and things like that. New Jersey's bear season is back. That's a that's a win. There is uh, North Carolina has the biggest black bears in the world. We've talked about that before. Uh, they they got another just absolute stud bear this year that was in that 800 pound range. I think a lot of people saw that picture, but it's it's amazing that uh, that the black bears and you know, Dare and Hyde County, North Carolina, and some in Nash County, going to throw that one out there. Uh, they, you know, oftentimes are coming close to double the size of the average greater Yellowstone grizzly bear. Like they are stupendously large black bears. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty incredible, but I think it comes down to uh, the the availability of of food and you know resources too. Yeah, I mean, to an extent, right? But, you know, you've also got bears in places where they can live in dumps and stuff like that, where they have unlimited access to food, like as much as they can eat, and they don't get that big. Like they don't even get half that size. And a 400-pound black bear is an absolute monster black bear. Monster. Yeah, monster black bear. And then you double that with a North Carolina black bear. It's like, what is going on? Now those hunts are ridiculously expensive. You know, you might end up in the in the thirty thousand dollar range to go on a guided black bear hunt there, which is bonkers to me. But they're the biggest of the big. So yeah, I mean, if that's what you're looking for, you know, and 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 it must be a genetics thing, you know. I, I just think it's, it's a lot of stuff. You know, food. I'm not going to argue that food isn't part of sure. it. Food definitely right. is part of it. Climate is part of it, but it's also in this fairly small area of like dare and hyde county north carolina and there's a refuge there that helps those bears um, increase population so when you're playing that genetic lottery you're going to get more bears and some of them will have the genetic potential to really grow and then you've got a, a climate where the boars don't ever have to hibernate so they can keep eating all year long they've got lots of row crops they've got lots of nuts they've got some berries there's just a, a lot of food available for these animals and you know, not, not every bear can go out at night and graze on peanuts in a field, you know? So when you give them that opportunity, they're, they're going to get big. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, am I missing any other spring bear states? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think we've, uh, we've hit them. Okay. The ones that are available. So I'll talk about Oregon, I guess, with spring bear a little bit. You can sort of hunt east side or west side. East side is going to be spot and stock, uh, fewer bears, drier climate, a lot steeper, uh, tougher country to get into, especially because a lot of the spring bear places have just monster levels of snow in places during spring bear season. So that, that one snow drift is going to prevent you from being able to get in there in a truck, but there's lots of bare and muddy ground that you can't get through with a snowmobile. So it, it's just tough navigation. If you go to Western Oregon, you're going to be dealing with more rain, 
but you can get around on logging roads and stuff like that. There's a lot higher population of bears. The Western Oregon bears tend to be uh, less photochromatic, so fewer fewer off-color bears. And then Eastern Oregon, we find all, all the colors out here. Um, in my area, black is the least common color and the color that I'm always hoping to find. Um, but we get orange and red and, uh, and, and blonde, lots of chocolate bears, um, you know, different color gradations of, of those brown. One of the bears I got last fall was gray, which was super, super pretty. And, uh, and you know, then we've got obviously the, the black bears, but don't get to see very many black, black bears in on this side of things yeah that is that is pretty interesting and it's it's very similar to the type of stuff that i hunt in uh, in montana i that's i mean spring bear is is probably my favorite hunt overall like if i could do one thing forever it would it would be spring bear somewhere right but in in montana in that uh that western border of montana and and eastern border of uh idaho there it's it's pretty rare to see a, a black bear so like a black black bear most of the time you're seeing you know reds and orange and cinnamons and you know just uh not not a lot of that that true jet black and so i get really excited when i see a, a true jet black black bear <laughs> and people think that's funny I know they do. Cause that's, you know, they want to see color phase in the worst possible way. And they're just punching the air right now and inside their pickup going to work or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it just depends where you go. So this opportunity is here for folks. Uh, you know, you, you can buy your hunting license. Uh, I think this is around $155 as non-resident eight bucks to put in for a tag here. And, uh, and then $16 and 50 cents if you draw it. So pretty, pretty reasonable opportunity. If you don't draw it, you get a preference point and then, you know, your odds are getting higher every year for that. So encourage people to, uh, to get involved and our elk, uh, will thank you. Our mule deer will thank you and they will do so by being able to increase their populations. So, uh, okay. That's probably enough spring bear talk. Some other changes in regulations this year around the country. I know Oregon shifted all of its uh, fall season dates, moved it back. Uh, that'll be really interesting, especially for, well, I guess not especially, but starting with archery and then moving into rifle, the game has changed. You know, the, the deck has been reshuffled because these animals are in different places at different times of year. Yeah. Yep. No, I, uh, I feel the, feel the same way about that. So, and I, I've heard just, you know, from, from my understanding, listening to, or, or reading on a few of those different changes there. Yeah. I, I don't really know, you know, what, uh, what to, to look forward to or what to see in those state, you know, in that state, um, as far as the seasons go, you know, the different changes right. go. Well, it, for the rifle hunts, it's going to be colder, more snow. Um, and there's good and bad that can come with that. If you're a, if you're a ride or die backpack backcountry guy hunting in the cold is a lot harder. Uh, you have to carry so much gear just to survive that a lot of times there's not a lot of room left, you know, to pack out an animal and you know, your, your daylight gets limited. So now you're spending, you know, 14 hours a day in a tent, you know, because there's just not daylight for the rest of it and guys can 
slowly or, or quickly start to lose their minds under those conditions. Uh, for archery, I know a lot of people are excited. Rut tends to be going a lot harder at the end of the season. Uh, that's not necessarily a, a good thing, in my opinion. Just because the elk are rutting harder doesn't make them easier to call in. I think quite the opposite, in fact. So the guys that are going to be hunting that last week of September this year, man, put on your running shoes because it's going to be a lot faster game than what you're used to. Yeah, no, I, I think pushing the pushing the season dates back is uh, uh, obviously, like you said, it's going to be tougher, um, colder conditions for the rifle hunters. Um, but yeah, no, that'll be super fun for the guys that, that want to go in there and do do archery hunts there being that it'll be right peak rut, uh, typically. Right. Um, and is that true for both Eastern and Western Oregon? I would say so. Um, there's, uh, some debate about, you know, how different Roosevelt elk and Rocky mountain elk actually are. I know, uh, for a certainty that we shipped train loads of elk from Eastern Oregon to Astoria, the, the mouth of the Columbia, in the earlier 1900s and uh so to to say that that this is a roosevelt and this is a rocky or a little bit nebulous um i i I just don't know i don't know how how real that difference genetically actually is i'm i'm not a geneticist i i don't know for sure but i do know that the populations have been muddled significantly and the only way that the boone and crockett club differentiates them is by which side of the interstate they're killed on so if they're killed west of i-5 then they're roosevelt east they're rocky but that goes down the middle of the willamette valley that you know is roosevelt habitat on both sides so it's just tricky so for me to say you know the the western oregon elk are going to act different from the eastern oregon elk i think is more so to do with the terrain and vegetation and climate than it is to do with any subtleties that that may exist in uh in their actual genetics yeah so yeah no i uh it's nice to you know just hear about some of these different things here in oregon Uh, obviously like i said similar to alaska not a, a state that i'm i'm super focused on myself just being that i don't have a lot of my guys uh, applying in oregon um with uh you know a little bit of a frustrating point system but uh do have a lot of the sheep and goat guys applying there a lot of my guys applying for sheep and goat there because there is no point system for the sheep and goat in in uh, oregon um but no that is that's pretty exciting that uh they did switch that those season dates so well, let's talk about uh, some states that you're really strong in. What's uh, what's cracking in New Mexico? So New Mexico, they did have uh, one major change that I'm actually pretty excited about. Um, it's one that's obviously controversial, um, but it's no scopes on muzzleloaders now uh, here in New Mexico. So all, uh, all muzzleloader seasons starting in 23 uh, will not allow uh, scopes or scoped uh, muzzleloaders um, during those hunts. So what that's looking like is, uh, you know, just just based off of, uh, I think a lot of these, you know, unit specific areas where they're archery and muzzleloader only uh, seasons, they only have archery and muzzleloader seasons. 
I think it'll it'll give you a, a lot stronger chance of drawing those units, right? A 15, 17, 13 tag, right? Where they're, they're archery and muzzleloader specific. I think a lot of people are going to be shifting away from that and going to rifle specific tags. So if you're a muzzleloader guy um, and you want to hunt without, and you're okay with hunting without a, a scoped rifle, I think New Mexico is going to be a, a really strong uh, place to be applying for and have a good chance of drawing some of those, those, uh, those harder units to draw um, across the state. So you can't put, can you put a red dot on? Can you put any kind of optic or is it iron sights only? So iron sights only. Yep. No, no optics, not even a, a zero power uh, optic. Okay. Like a red dot. So peep sights or, or uh, fiber optics um, is all you would be able to use. Great. And then what are the other regulations for a muzzleloader in New Mexico? Can you have an inline? Can you use uh gosh, I'm not a muzzleloader guy. So what are the, the powder pellets? Okay. Just, uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, non smokeless powder. Okay. So you still got to use a black powder. Yep. Traditional black powder, um, and inline muzzleloaders are, are still okay. So all of your other muzzleloader, uh, things there's no restrictions just just the optics pyrodex is that what that stuff's called yep, yep. Gotcha. They'll, they'll either Oof. come in 50 grain pellets or uh i don't know if they do 100 but i think they're doing 50 50 grain pellets in those okay. yep and uh so you can still use an inline you can still use pyrodex you can still use sabos you're just using iron sights correct yep so i i think if uh, a guy can come up with a good system like a peep you know a peep i think would be ideal um i think you could still make some shots you know in that 200 to 250 type range fairly easily right um now obviously it comes down to uh what you're personally capable of right uh knowing what your 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 maximum range is uh to make an ethical kill but i I do believe that with, with a, a traditional inline muzzleloader, I think you could, you could be really effective with it still. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that is interesting. It's always fun when these regulations occur. It's a great social experiment every time. It's like, how is this going to affect things? And everybody, you know, throws out their theories ahead of, ahead of time. And then when the rubber meets the road, almost everybody turns out to be wrong. And then, the next year it evolves some more, right? Because a lot of people are sitting back waiting to see like what happens, you know, how's this going to work? And then they get involved, you know, the, the following season or the season after that. It's a, it's a great game. It's a great game. Yeah, no, I, and, and I don't like to speculate, right. Um, just try to keep things vague and uh, avoid that as much as I can. But um, I do personally think that, that with, the, this new change, I think a lot of guys are going to shift to to rifle hunts. I don't think there's as many people that are comfortable shooting open sight muzzleloaders as uh, you know a scoped type muzzleloader. Okay, so preference points: build them or burn them. Give me a state where guys should be building. Give me a state where guys should be burning. Um, I, I do think that guys should be building points in, in Wyoming and Colorado, right? Um, 
the the Utah thing, uh, Utah just changed their bull elk management agenda. Um, now they're they're looking at uh, killing three to four year old type bulls um, versus a, a six to seven year old bull. Um, so the the age management went down there. Um, and so I think for a lot of guys that have a lot of points for bull elk in, in Utah, uh, this year and the, and the next may be a good time to, to burn those points. Uh, if you're looking to kill, you know, uh, an older age class bull, um, because with this, this younger age class agenda, they're going to start to increase the number of, of, uh, elk tags that are, that are available in those premium Boone and Crockett units. That is, uh. That is really interesting. Utah has been such a, such a powerhouse state for, you know, large antlered elk for so long. And I can see both sides of it because I'm not a, I'm not a ride or die trophy kind of guy. I like hunting opportunity and I want more people to have hunting opportunity. And I also get that some people, you know, are, you know, quote unquote trophy hunters and they, they want the biggest antlers possible. There's been so many lies spun around the industry about, you know, guys saying that, you know, these, these big mature bulls are, are past their breeding age and guys are using that as a, as a reason for justifying shooting them. And that's crazy, man. You've got to get a bull to like 14 or 15 years old um, before he's not sexually viable anymore. And that just doesn't happen. Just doesn't happen. They get killed by other elk before that ever happens. So I don't know about all that for me personally, I can see where a lot of folks in Utah are going to be upset about this change, but man, there's going to be a lot of kids that get to hunt that might not have ever gotten to anyways. Um, a lot of adults and newcomers to the game that are going to have opportunities to hunt, to, to be able to get really healthy meat back into their homes. So I'm for it. Sounds good to me. Good job, Utah. Yeah, it sounds like they're 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 changing a lot of uh, a lot of things there that that are making the opportunity uh, just become a lot more available for people, right? Um, uh, in in Utah, right? Like uh, the over the counter stuff, for instance, right? It sold out. Your your any bull tag sold out in seven hours. Um, your spike tag sold out. Uh, any spike tag, I think, sold out even you know a, a little bit later than that, like 10 or something hours. Right. Um, and so it, it's made it really tough, you know, just the opportunity. Um, so it'll be nice to see that being that Utah has always been a, a really long-term type state for a non-resident on those, uh, on those limited entry tags. Um, it'll, it'll just, uh, offer a little bit more opportunity for guys to, to hunt there more consistently, um, on a limited entry tag. And Idaho was kind of a disaster last year, huh? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Good yep. grief. Still, still, that's <laughs> uh, a, that's a tough one for me. Yeah. It, it's just chaos. It's like, uh, it's like flying on Southwest. It's just everybody sprints towards whatever they can get. And I don't know. It's a, that's a wild thing. Having their system get shut down. So many people are logging on to, to the system with, with every device they can come up with. So, well, you know, they said that I think they had like 60,000 people on there at one time. It's a good chance that that was 20,000 people, you know, some of whom had six different devices logged in to try to get a, a higher number. 
and it it shut their whole website down. They had to restart later on. Dudes are just are manic. They're just scrambling to get in there to to snatch up a hunt. And then when it comes down to it, there are just a massive number of of leftover tags at the beginnings of the seasons because people can't actually get it together to do an out of state hunt. Yeah. There's definitely things that they could change. Uh, One of those, obviously, if they switch that just to a draw type, you know, on the -the over-the-counter stuff, just switched it to a draw um, for non-residents. I I think that would that would save them a lot of headache and save a lot of other people a lot of headache. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, just in in general. Now, almost nobody talks about Texas as a draw state, but there are some draw tags down there, and you know, you, you've been working on a strategy on, on my portfolio to, to get some of those. And I'm excited about, we'll, we'll probably hit those in the next couple of years. Don't you think? Yeah. Yep. Um, they, uh, they cube their points in, uh, in Texas. And so, um, and, and then categorize their points versus being uh, species specific in that state. And so what happens is a lot of guys, uh, residents or, or non-residents that are applying there uh, don't understand that part of it and and they'll they'll draw a tag for a unit that's really easy to draw in and and, and all these other points that they're building for these these premium units um, because it's categorically uh, accumulated um, when you draw so say you're building whitetail points and mule deer points if you draw a whitetail tag you lose all of your points for mule deer and whitetail um, in that state. And so there aren't a lot of guys that have more than, than zero to one points. Um, so it's, uh, it's something that we're looking at as being, you know, a, a one in three to one in four odd type, type draw. Gotcha. So. Okay. Um, do you deal with California at all? Um, personally, not a lot in, uh, in California. I know, I know a lot of their deer tags are over the counter there. Um, and they do have uh, a decent amount of bear tags, uh, that are over the counter there as well. Um, and then some, some draw tags for, for blacktail and things like that in, in the Northern part of the state with, you know, not having to take uh, as much time to draw. So, uh, one to four points, um, on, on a lot of those Northern, uh, units in, in California. Gotcha. Well, it was, uh, I think it was 10 years ago yesterday that, uh, my, my contribution to the, the draw system in, in Oregon, uh, went into effect, which was that if you're an Oregon resident and you're active duty military and you're stationed in another state and you get to come home on leave during, uh, during a season, you can get a tag issued to you. Buck tag, bull tag, they'll they'll figure out something to give you. It may not be like you know a top three trophy unit or something like that, but you know we recognized um, at the time that it was extremely difficult to be able to know in April where you're going to be in October if you're in the Army or the Marine Corps or the Navy. Right? You might be deployed. There might be a new war that pops out, some kind of humanitarian crisis, training. You you never know. So when you get leave during the season, like you want to be able to come home and hunt with your family. So now, and for the last 10 years, as of I think yesterday, uh, that's an option. So 
for uh, for my Oregon residents who are military dudes, uh, keep that in mind. And then the other thing is, if you are in the military and you're not an Oregon resident, you rate resident rates in Oregon, uh, which is another cool thing. Most states don't do that. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's pretty cool. I I didn't know that in uh, in Oregon. So that's uh, that's pretty sweet. I think uh, it, it'd be nice to see a lot of other states doing this the, the same thing. Yeah, I think. For sure. I mean, Idaho got so overwhelmed that they had discounted uh, tags for disabled veterans who are over fifty percent disabled, I believe, and they were so overwhelmed by non-residents that. You know, they have limited access to those tags as well now. So that's part of that, that, you know, gold rush of 60,000 people trying to get in uh, in December. It's just bonkers. Yeah. And there's, I mean, obviously uh, for New Mexico residents here, if you're a a disabled vet, um, there are discounts as far as, um, you know, tag costs and, and hunting costs and things like that here. So... Talk to me a little bit about Oryx in New Mexico. Oh man, Oryx is, uh, it's pretty special. I think it's, uh, it's probably one of the cooler, uh, hunts I think, uh, that a guy could do. I didn't know about it myself for a long time and until I moved here. Um, but they have two hunts here in the state. Uh, they're all free range oryx so uh, no high fences or um, so lots of opportunity to hunt them um, there's private land tags and then there's draw tags private land tags you can purchase um, uh, with with a landowner uh, not very many options there uh, basically none there as far as the private land option go but then you have white sands missile range where the majority of the Oryx live uh, here in the state of New Mexico. Uh, And that's a once in a lifetime tag. So if you were to draw any of their seasons uh, on the missile range, it is, it is a a once in a lifetime tag um, unless it's a broke horn tag. Okay. So what's a broke horn tag? So you can only kill a, uh, an Oryx that has, um, I believe it's 60% missing on one side and then the other side can be full length, uh, horn. So, uh, if you don't, it doesn't matter, you know, what Oryx you're killing. Like if, if you just like hunting Oryx or you want to, you want an opportunity to hunt Oryx, um, you could, you could draw one of those tags and harvest Oryx, uh, you know, just, just an Oryx. Um, and then they've got off range tags, uh, which, which are all public land, right? For the most part, there's lots of public land to hunt, uh, but you're hunting fairly low numbers of, of Oryx, um, on those off range tags. So you would be hunting off range means everything off of, uh, the military installations. So those Oryx generally live within, you know, a a couple miles of the fence um so they're not they're not leaving the range uh, a ton unless they're they're running missions on range okay gotcha so when they're when they're dropping bombs out there that tends to scatter the oryx a little bit yeah yeah it seems like it it pushes them off a little bit more uh, than others and, and in different areas but i'd say within a couple miles of uh, of the range in all directions northwest south east um you'll you'll see oryx 
not many. Um, we've we've had I want to say nine this year uh, off range oryx tags, and and we've gone a hundred percent on them. There's days you'll go without seeing an oryx on those, and then you know the next day you'll run into a group of twenty. But it's not one of those hunts where you're going to see them everywhere, um, all over all over the place. Uh, an on range hunt you'll see. Uh, you could see up to 200 a day um, on an on-range type hunt. And they're such cool animals. Oh, yeah. No, they're they're incredible. Like, I get geeked out about them all the time. And every, <laughs> time, I, every time I see one, I get so excited. Like, it's like the first time I, I've seen one. You know, every, you know the, the first time I see them on that hunt, like, I just get giddy, right? It, it gets me really, really excited when I see them. They're a, they're a super neat, cool animal. Obviously they've got, uh, they're, I would say they're, they're in between a deer and a, an elk in size. Um, so probably the size of like a, a donkey, um, uh, they've got real short legs, big, big, deep chest. So, uh, an endurance animal for sure, you know, it makes sense, uh, being that they, their native range is, is the, uh, the Sahara, right? Um, so big, vast expanses, uh, of land. So they're, they're used to it. And so it's, a it's just a cool opportunity for guys to, uh, to come and do. So if you're, if you're looking to go on, uh, an Oryx hunt, uh, and have some, a, a little bit better draw odds, the off range Oryx, like if you just want to go Oryx hunting, um, and you don't care about size or anything like that. Um, I think that off range hunt and you're willing to grind a little bit, it's definitely more of a mental grind, uh, than a physical grind. So you're going to be covering lots of country, uh, glassing a lot, um, just trying to pick one up versus seeing lots of groups and being able to decide, you know, what you want on, on like an on range type hunt. And those on range hunts obviously are are a lot more difficult to draw uh, than, than an off range. Well, look, we've, we've gone over a bunch of regulations in a bunch of States um, for the folks that are, that are still hanging in here with us at this point in the show, obviously they're, they're interested in, in hunting in, in lots of States and understanding what these regulations are. And it can be overwhelming. It is overwhelming. It's overwhelming for, for me to think about, and even for you who this is your profession, you're focusing on on a region of the U.S. to become an expert in and, and maintain currency on all the changes. If somebody wants to develop a hunting strategy so that they're, they're gaining points in a lot of states, that they know which units to be applying in, um, that they're looking for opportunities for now and into the future, and you know they're they're making this hunting plan like you, you guys are, are the people to talk to about that. How do they do that? How do they get a hold of you? How do they start that conversation? Um, yeah, you can reach out to us on, uh, we're on, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Um, you can go to our website. Um, it's just the draw, um, dot com is, uh, is our website. Um, and you can reach out there. There's a form, uh, contact us form that you can reach out there. Uh, you can always call us. Uh, our phone number is 575-222-1234. Um, so uh, you can always reach out that way. Um, and then through any of our social media uh, contacts as well. And, and one of our consultants will, will get with you and, you know, we'll, we'll talk about your goals um, because that's, 
you know, that's where we can uh, have a good solid idea of, of what you're looking for, whether it's state or, or species or things like that. Um, we can help you come up with a plan uh, using those applications to create the opportunity. Oh, that's awesome. You've, you've been a tremendous resource for me and, and, uh, and I've had hunting opportunities through the draw that I would never have had otherwise. And, uh, you know, hunting is very important to me and I'm, I'm very grateful for those opportunities and, and really grateful to you, Jared, for, uh, for keeping me in the loop and, and making sure that I'm not missing out on, on years and preference points. And when opportunities come up, you're always reaching out. I really appreciate that. You're, you're doing a fantastic job. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, I mean, just always looking forward to, uh, to working with uh, more people and, and with you yourself and, and seeing, you know, how your plan develops and, and, uh, and the different hunts that we're able to go on. So, yeah, no, I, I really appreciate your time and, and letting me uh, be a part of this podcast. Thank you very much. Well, sir, I hope you, uh, hope you're off to a great start on this new year and, uh, and I'm sure I'll see you at some shows. You're going to be at hunt expo this year. Yep. Yep. February two through five. So we'll we'll be there. See you there. All right. We'll see you. Thanks. All right. Thank you. About a decade ago, I launched my old aluminum drift boat onto a remote whitewater river and floated for a couple sunny spring days to meet some friends who were bear hunting downstream. While I made them dinner that evening, one of my buddies came over and showed me a SIG rangefinder. I'd heard of the company, and I'd seen their gear while I was a Marine, but this was the first time I'd seen one of their products built for hunters. The range popped up instantly, and it continued to range everything I put the reticle on as I scanned across the canyon. I'd never seen anything like it on the civilian market, and frankly, not on the military one either. Since that day, SIG has come out with a long list of high-quality and innovative products for hunters, as well as continuing the same for military, law enforcement, and responsible citizens. They have some great training facilities located around the country, too. Check out all that SIG has to offer on their website, sigsour.com. And this episode of the podcast is brought to you by SIG. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.